Listening to Condé Nast Traveler's podcast, Women Who Travel, you will be transported to the ancient ruins of Pompeii, to New York City's most storied neighborhoods, and to the jaw-dropping peaks of Bhutan. It's the best of what you love about traveling, experiencing different people, cultures, and perspectives, all from the comfort of your own home. Each week, join host and global journalist Lali Alikoglu as she shares her own experiences along with those of self-identifying women travelers from all over the globe. How do the bestie comedian pairs of Sheer Zamata and Nicole Byer navigate travel together? What can you realistically expect from your first global solo travel experience? How is dance used as a tool for healing in Indigenous Australian communities? If these questions piqued your interest, pack your bags and go on a journey with women who travel. Available wherever you get your podcasts. From the very beginning, I've made a point of being there for everything. Attending every play and game and birthday party. Determined not to let my children miss me the way I missed my dad. But then, my old friend Bill is elected president of the United States. And I'm on an airplane, flying home to spend just two days with the young people I cherish most. The plane tilts slightly and we begin our descent into Logan. The cabin lights flicker on. Magazines are stuffed into bags and Boston comes into focus below. In 20 minutes, we'll be on the ground and tomorrow morning I'll be doing what I never thought I'd be coming home to do. Watch my older son run away. Robert Reich is an economist, professor at UC Berkeley, political commentator, and the author of 18 books. Presidents Ford, Carter, Clinton, and Obama all called on Reich to serve in their administrations. You may remember his service as Secretary of Labor from 1993 to 1997, where he became best known for implementing the Family and Medical Leave Act, increasing minimum wage, and focusing national attention on the need to help American workers to adapt to the new economy. In today's meditative story, Robert shares a story he's never told publicly. It's about competing senses of responsibility to have a lasting impact in the world. It's about making our time in this world count. In Robert's case, it's a choice between fathering two boys and his term of service for President Bill Clinton. In this series, we combine immersive first-person stories and breathtaking music with the science-backed benefits of mindfulness practice. From Wait What, this is Meditative Story. I'm Rohan, and I'll be your guide. The body relaxed, the body breathing, your senses open, your mind open, meeting the world. I 
I make my way down the plane's narrow aisle. Another weary man in a rumpled suit leaving Washington for the weekend. Washington to Boston. Work world to family world. The flight is just an hour and a half, but it's steeped in banal ritual. I take my seat, nod a greeting to whoever's beside me, try to hold space on the shared armrest. In time, we're rocketing down the runway. The moment I mark to be the official departure from the week behind. The lights dim. The cabin goes quiet in that reverential way cabins do. And then we're lifting into the night sky. Commute home every weekend, and eventually you stop watching the city recede below. I close my eyes. I've held jobs of consequence before, but I've never run a federal agency of nearly 20,000 employees with a $35 billion budget. The ability to change the lives of millions of Americans for the better is in my grasp. People assume my job as labor secretary is all about dollars and cents. And of course, that's partially true. But at its heart, it's about time. Time. Improving the hours and days and years lived by American workers. America's coming out of a deep recession. Even if they've got jobs, most workers have not had a raise in years. I've taken this job because life has become perilously difficult for working families. The Department of Labor has sprung to life. Despite strenuous opposition from the House and Senate, millions of American workers now wake up to their first minimum wage raise in years. And now if a parent or child becomes sick, they can take out 12 weeks and get their job back. It's still unpaid leave, but it's better than no leave at all. Achieving victories like this is grueling and all-consuming and occasionally dispiriting. And it's the most wonderful job I can imagine. This is not the image of work I grow up with. When I'm a kid, my dad has a woman's clothing store and is not terribly successful. He's always been nervous about making enough money, always consumed by his work. I remember him as this tall, handsome man with a deep voice and a strong New York accent. Thin, fastidious, with a widow's peak and always a hint of aftershave. A great dancer and a kind man. He takes seriously his role as family provider. He works very, very, very hard. I see him forever taking piles of women's clothing from one store to another, trying to gauge where they would be most likely to sell. When he isn't doing that, he's bent over the books, adding up the numbers, or buying from wholesalers. Often he's on the road for hours. Dinner is always late. 
Finally, I hear the handle turn and watch him walk through the front door, pained and sad. His stomach frequently hurts from all the pressure. Sunday mornings are a blessed reprieve for him. I see him sitting in the living room of our small house, still in his faded pajamas, feet in his old faux leather slippers. The couch sits against the window, the sun coming in over his shoulder, warming the newspaper in his hands. This is the only time of week he's free from anxiety. As a young boy, I want desperately to be held by him. I'm too young to understand why he needs this time to himself. I just understand that if I grab at his pajama leg here, I can hoist myself up onto his knees and make my way onto his lap. I tuck myself between him and the crinkling pages of his paper. And then he folds the paper, puts it aside. I feel his hands lifting me kindly, picking me up and putting me down on the floor. I do it again, crawl up onto his lap, and again he gently puts me down on the floor. There's nothing to do but sit there, wanting to be with the father who's right in front of me, but dismissed each time I make the climb. Now I'm a father with boys of my own. They're too old to climb into my lap anymore, but still young enough to want me around. From the very beginning, I've made a point of being there for everything. Attending every play and game and birthday party, determined not to let my children miss me the way I missed my dad. But then... My old friend Bill is elected president of the United States, and I'm on an airplane, flying home to spend just two days with the young people I cherish most. The plane tilts slightly, and we begin our descent into Logan. The cabin lights flicker on. Magazines are stuffed into bags, and Boston comes into focus below. In 20 minutes, will be on the ground, and tomorrow morning I'll be doing what I never thought I'd be coming home to do. Watch my older son run away. The Landing of a Plane the force of deceleration on the body making us lean forward. The landing of a plane. The mind skipping away to what we need to do to get to where we're headed. Notice the imbalance or imbalance in your body. Any momentum of your own mind.
It's a chilly and rainy Saturday morning in the woods near Cambridge. A New England autumn downpour has an aroma all its own, rich, loamy, dank. The smell of the leaves mingles with the mud and the wet in a way that makes everything feel alive. That everything feels like change. At 17, Adam has blossomed into a long-distance runner. He's tall and thin with long, graceful legs made for covering mile after mile. Being in Washington these past few years has meant missing most of his cross-country meets. He's a senior now. He asks me to be at this one, one of the last before he heads to college. The two of us stand under a grove of trees, angling for shelter. The other boys arrive one by one, and he wanders over to greet them, everyone drenched at this point. And the race hasn't even started. As they gather into position, I wish Adam luck. What he enjoys most is the run itself, the physicality, the exertion of it. I'm happy that he finds this sport. And the horn blares, and he's gone. Suddenly I'm alone. The morning, silent, but for the rain. I'm the only parent here. Even the regulars skip this one. It's a full-on deluge. I'm sopping in my parka, huddled to stay warm. There's nothing to do but get soaked. Smell the mud and leaves and the coming winter. Since I took the job in Washington, the chatter in my head can intrude in an internal dialogue about some upcoming meeting, some new strategy, maybe replaying a recent interview. But standing here, in this downpour, something different happens. Instead of being held hostage to this voice in my head, I just stand here. There's a certain irony in making this trip essentially to watch Adam dash away from me. But that's what I do, and that's what he's doing. Not just today, into the woods, but in life. When your kids are very young, the days are interminable. Getting their shoes on takes an hour, and then you look up and they're driving, thinking about college. In no time, he'll be out of the house, a man, up and running. I'll be left standing there, not unlike now, wishing I'd had more rainy mornings with him. And it also happens with my younger son, Sam, but in a different way, just as suddenly. I'm home for the weekend. Sam is in his bed. He's on the cusp of adolescence. I walk over to say good night before heading out for the evening. Dad, he says, when you get home, can you come tell me? Well, that's silly, I say. I'll be late. You need your sleep. I'll just see you in the morning. But then something happens. Sam's big blue eyes begin to fill with tears. I look at him stunned. I ask why it's so important to him. I just want to know that you're home with me, in the same house, he says. 
So a few hours later, I tiptoe back into his room, kiss his forehead, tell him goodnight. I'm not sure it even really registers for him. But it does for me. I love the real delicateness here. A touch so light, but known at the same time. Is there a memory from your own life that comes to mind now? However quiet, however charged, invite it in and drop into it. Let go into it. The number of bedtime kisses you deliver, the number of skinned knees you tend, the number of cross-country runs, they feel like they'll never end. But that's precisely what they do. Numbers are my stock in trade. The accounting of this parenting business is this, realistically, I'll make a dozen more peanut butter sandwiches for my kids, maybe a dozen and a half, but the number is finite. Get your head around this gloomy math and suddenly there's a question you can no longer avoid, can no longer shrug off. What am I doing? The slap of sneakers hitting wet earth echoes in the distance. In a few moments, with a flash of color, Adam emerges through the wet trees, drenched, exhausted, grinning. In a few minutes, we're back in the car. On the ride home, we discuss the details of his run. While in my mind, a new clarity snaps into place. The first time I meet Bill Clinton, it's in a doorway. We're both Rhodes Scholars on our way to Oxford on a boat in the North Atlantic. I've gotten seasick, and I'm barely holding it together in my cabin when there's a knock on my door. I open it to find this tall, lanky guy from Arkansas standing there, an offering of chicken soup and crackers in his hands. Now, nearly three decades later, I'm standing in his doorway at the Oval Office. I'm back in Washington just a few days since being home for the weekend, though I feel like I've been waiting for this moment for a long time, and most urgently since the race. Bill is seated at the massive, resolute desk framed by the tall windows behind him, gold silk curtains gathered at their edges. Can I have a word with you? I ask. Sure, he says. 
And before I know it, I'm describing Adam's cross-country meet. The realization that while I'm here in D.C., Adam and Sam are readying for the next stage of their lives. I am talking once again about time. I need to change the math. I need to resign. In the weeks that follow, I deliver the news to many others, too. Almost to a one, they nod and then quietly ask, what's the real reason you're leaving? It seems to me a kind of sexism to doubt that a man decides to step away from a successful career to spend more time with his family. Bill understands. He tells me he'll miss me, and I thank him. I turn around, walk out of the Oval Office, down the hallway of the West Wing, a lump already rising in my throat. I'm profoundly sad, and even more profoundly happy to have made this decision. Two weeks before my father's 102nd birthday, I visit him. He's in bed, frail, a shadow of the towering figure I grew up with. I curl up next to him and put my arms around him. I love you, Dad, I say, and kiss his forehead. In his soft voice, he replies, That's unusual. What's unusual, I say, I love you. We were never, he says, a very demonstrative family. He dies not long after that. Those words catch not because he wasn't a warm and loving dad. In most ways he was, but his ability to express that love was limited, as it is for so many fathers, or mothers for that matter, consumed by work or worry or whatever else pulls them away from the people who need them the most. I'm lucky. I left the Clinton administration and had a few meaningful years with my boys before they left home. And now they have families of their own. I don't regret leaving Washington for an instant. What I really regret is how little time there is in this cross-country race. I don't know what came across most for you in Robert's story, but for me, it was something about letting go. His role in the Clinton administration may well have been the pinnacle of his professional life, but he chose to let it go, to make space for other things. Renunciation is a word that can feel very out of date, harking back, as it does, to images of monastic lifestyles and medieval austerity. And while that was definitely part of the mindfulness tradition back in the day, There are ways to bring renunciation, to bring letting go, into our modern lives. So let's play with that for a short closing practice together. And if it's possible for you, 
It doesn't sound too weird. Ball one of your hands up into a fist. Tucking your thumb in, if that's comfortable. Keeping the hand tight. Notice the power here. The strength of your grip. Its potential. Now, let it go. And notice the release that comes with that. Palm up. Still able to hold the world, but now free. Try that again a couple of times if you like. Dropping your awareness into your hand and knowing the difference between holding and freedom. Between tension and lightness. Really dropping into that if you can. Another aspect of Robert's letting go was what he was letting go into. The warmth of family life, supporting his boys, being there. Being there for the small and the big stuff. Being there to watch the change. So for the second half of our meditation, let's do a bit of that. Breathing deeply. Letting the shoulders and hands and jaw be soft. Letting the eyes be soft. Taking as long as you need to notice where in the body there is some warmth or pleasant sensation. For me right now, it's in my face, my cheeks. Finding whatever area of the body feels most warm, however slight, and dropping into it, letting go into it. Giving yourself permission to really enjoy the sensations here. Allowing them to radiate and infuse the mind. Letting go into this. And letting go of anything else that is not this. Letting go and letting go. At the start of this meditation, we talked about how renunciation is to let go of extraneous things in your life 
and in the doing, free up space, mental, physical and emotional, to allow you to focus more on the things that most make a difference to you. So if you'd like to explore that as a theme for your week before we next meet, try giving something up. It can be something physical, such as a certain food or an activity. Or it can be something mental or emotional, such as a regular thought pattern or habit. Then, most importantly, notice what happens. Do you feel more free? Is there resistance to the renunciation? What can you learn from the friction of the process? It could just be a tiny thing. What matters is that we start to test our boundaries of what we really need to hold on to and gain insight from how it feels to let go. And if it's not for you, that's fine too. Letting go of yet another thing to do. I get it. Either way, I'll leave you now. So thank you again, Robert, and thank you. Stay safe. Stay well. On behalf of the team at Meditative Story, thank you for spending time with us today. We love creating the show for you. And if the show serves you in a meaningful way, we'd love to hear from you. Would you take a minute right now to write us a review in your podcast app? When you leave a review, it really inspires our team. And we're a group who derives so much energy from understanding how meditative story impacts you. It's also a way for you to pay it forward by helping others discover the show. So if leaving a review speaks to you today, We'd really appreciate it. Meditative Story is a Wait What original. Our executive producers are Darren Triff, June Cohen, and Mary Beth Kirshner. The series is produced by Dorothy Abrams. Original music and sound design by Ryan Holiday. Our writers are Peter Keckley. Florence Williams, Jess Winfield, Hannah Brencher, Belle Shea, and Andrew Rincon. Technical support from Robin Wise. Mixing and mastering by Brian Pugh. Special thanks to Emily McManus, Christina Gonzalez, Sarah Sandman, Anna Pizzino, Ben Richardson, Kelsey Capitano, Tim Cronin, Colin Howarth, Charlie Manessas, and Adam Heiner. And I'm Rohan Gunatilika, creator of the Buddhify Meditation app and your host. Visit meditativestory.com to find the transcript for this episode.